Today I'd like to share with you from Leviticus chapter 19 a message I'm entitling Justice Equals Holiness. Justice Equals Holiness. And let me say a quick prayer and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for this gathering, and thank you for um, the opportunity that we have again to study. And uh, I just bless you, God, for these friends of mine, these brothers and sisters uh, that have been willing to really dig and trudge through some, if we're honest, complicated, difficult, and confusing passages of your word. And as we continue to do so, I pray that our hearts are enlightened and our souls are enlivened, and that we can become, once again, the kind of holy people that you desire us to be. I want to pray for those who are listening to this message who are maybe on a different journey uh, spiritually, and um, may their minds be enriched as a result of just hearing and learning and discovering along uh, with us, and may your spirit um, just move and embrace us, and woo us once again to you and to your love and to your grace. And I pray in your name. Amen. So, some of you know that I went to Mexico a couple weeks ago. It's something that we do with the King's Academy, and we go down there, we build houses. We built 14 houses uh, this year. We're over 300 houses from this amazing institution that I'm very um, blessed and privileged to be a part of. On the way back from Mexico, we're driving through. We take a pit stop in San Diego. And uh, while we're in this little shopping plaza, I walk by this place, Lifeway Christian Store. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is when I first became a Christian, when I first started going to church, I knew nothing, right? I walk in, and there's these, this weird music going on. There's somebody who, like what I'm doing right now, stands up in front of people, says a bunch of words. And some of those words I'm not even familiar with because they're insider language. It's language that people from the church know about. And so I'm a little foreign to the whole thing. And then they had this thing called a baptism where there's like a swimming pool, and it's chlorine, and you dunk people, and I have no idea what that is. And slowly through my time as, as an early Christian, learning and growing as to what this church thing was, was done primarily through two avenues. The first avenue was through my church and through the people there, but the second avenue was from the local Christian bookstore. And I went in that place religiously. <laughs> I was in there, and I had, I had this plan. I was going to start with the A's on the CD rack, and buy whoever happened to be the A rack. So I'd buy, it was AVB and acapella, and then I think, uh, and then I would go through them, and then I would get to Michael W. Smith and Jeff Moore in the Distance and Stephen Curtis Chapman and Amy Grant, and I would get through all the CDs. I was going to buy every single CD in the Christian store. I would buy every single bumper sticker in that store. And some of you have heard this story before, that I had a Chevy Monza, which nobody should ever own in their entire lives. Nobody in this room even knows what a Monza is. And I plastered that thing with 85 bumper stickers all the way in the back to the front to the hood. I would get stares and looks and all these different types of things. And so I spent my life growing up as a Christian inside a Christian bookstore. And I read all the books. I, I was fascinated by this new world that I had found. And some of you might actually be familiar with this phenomena where you have this experience with a faith or with Jesus, and then all of a sudden you just can't help but get more and more and more. In recent years, and some of you know this because you're at Spark, 
the Christian bookstore is like the last place I want to go to. Something has shifted, and I'm just being honest. Something has shifted in my spirit, in my journey, and there's things in there that I just, not, I just don't connect with anymore. And there's titles and CDs and albums and certain kinds of Bibles and certain bumper stickers that I'm just not on board with anymore. So I haven't been in a Christian bookstore in years as a result of some of this shift and this change. So when I walk by this place in San Diego this last week, I walk in and I am just kind of in a, both a nostalgic experience, but also now putting on my sociological hat going, what actually happens in these places now? Because I haven't been in one like over a decade. And I start looking through some of the titles and I start looking at some of the CDs. And here's what I noticed. If I were to take a look at the books and the materials that were being published, the vast majority of them, and I was tempted to give you actual titles and authors, but I decided not to, to be respectful. Here is the category of the number one top-selling materials from these Christian bookstores. Heaven, where do you go when you die? Or arguments about what happens when you die. Greatness. The idea that spiritual disciplines can actually make you a better person. The idea that spiritual disciplines or Christianity or religiosity can actually cause you to be a man of power or a woman of virtue. These kinds of things. Devotion. Prayer life. uh, How you think about your interior life. A lot of books on the end times. The apocalypse. The thing that's going to destroy the planet. A lot of books on the supernatural. Things like angels and demons and discerning the things that you can't see with your eyes but that exist in this world. And then one category that perhaps sums them all up is self-help. How do I manage my money better? How do I become a better husband, a better wife? Uh, how to become a better Christian leader? And all this, these kinds of genres. And as I was walking through, for, for me, this is just my experience. Because I haven't been in a Christian bookstore in years... This, to me, felt a little bit like navel-gazing. It felt a little bit like this kind of genre that we are participating in has taken what I have come to believe is one of the most profound and brilliant stories and narratives in the history of the world and distilled it down into self-help, end times, how you can become a better pervert. Now, let me just say, for the record, I am not against any of those. Um, I am not against most. <laughs> I'm not against some <laughs> of those books or some of those genres. Some of them, by the way, they're on my shelf. They're things that I read. They're things that I actually need from now, every now and then. But there's a part of me when I take a look at that genre, those genres, and I take a look at the story that you and I have been engaging in for a couple years now, and the story of Jesus and the story of Genesis, there's some sort of disconnect for me that I'm still trying to figure out and still trying to work out, and I'm expressing publicly because I need your help in this. Is this unusual or is this just me? I think the answer is no. Christian Smith, who's a sociologist and he does some statistical work, he's the founder and leader of the National Studies of Youth and Religion. And he did this entire 
uh, study on what kind of religion young people were growing up with. What kind of religion were they experiencing? Some of you have heard us talk about this before. And his fundamental thesis is that the kind of faith expression within Christianity is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, a lot of big words. Moralistic, what does that mean? That means don't have sex, love Jesus. That's what you're supposed to do. Don't steal, be a nice person. Moralism, the idea that fundamentally Christianity is is just about not doing all those bad things and making sure you do all the good things. Therapeutic, like I go to God when I'm in need. I go to God when I'm hurt. I go to God in those moments, and I can get from that God, the things that I need to make myself feel better. And deism is a very fancy theological word to simply say that I believe in a God that exists, but I don't really believe that God does anything in this world. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what he has concluded, and others have written about this, is that the kind of religion and the kind of faith expression that our young people are experiencing is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what he says is, and the thing that we have to pay attention to is it's not our kids, it's us. Because we have, for those of us who are older, we are the ones who have actually perpetuated this kind of religion. The God of moralistic, therapeutic deism says, hello there. You rang? How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking nice today. You are just the greatest thing ever, aren't you? Man, I am lucky to be your God. And you rub that little lamp and you cause the God genie to come out and this is what you have. Now, this is something that modern, current sociologists are dealing with, struggling with, wrestling with, writing about. But I've been asking a deeper question. Is this really new? Is this really new? What I'd like for you to do with me is go back, I don't know, maybe about 2,500 to 3,000 years. And I want you to go back to a period of time that these texts that we're studying, and this is something we sometimes don't think about, that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, etc., all these books of this Bible that we read were written in a space and a time that had context and culture and development. And there's this period of time, somewhere between the 8th or 9th century B.C. or B.C.E., all the way to the 3rd century, up until the time of Alexander the Great, that some people are calling the Axial Age. is a term that was coined by a guy by the name of Carl Jaspers, who's a philosopher, a bit of a psychologist. He's been asking this question, what happened during this time? And I'm oversimplifying and, and far distilling down too simply here, But fundamentally, when you read the literature about this time, the same time, by the way, that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written, when you read about this period of time, what you read about is massive development, massive industry, language is developing, commerce is developing, governments are developing. It's why Carl Jaspers called it the Axial Age. Civilizations shifted during this time and created the foundation work, law, governance, commerce, morals, ethics, etc., these civilizations shifted into this that set essentially the foundations from which you and I are all inheritors. You and I are benefactors of what happened during this time. You take a look at the Babylonians. 
If you take a look at the Assyrians and the Egyptians and all of these civilizations, and this goes to the Greeks and the Romans, massive explosion of all of what we would call modern civilization. And uh, this is a little bit of a side note, but fascinating in my brain anyway, is that some scholars suggest that they were so advanced and so um, forward-thinking that some people believe they were on the verge of the steam engine even by the second century B.C., Now, think about that. We had the steam engine around the 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, and we went from the steam engine to landing somebody on the moon in less than a couple hundred years. Think about what would have happened had they actually gotten the steam engine. Some even suggest that they had electricity back then. The Egyptians were starting to learn how that all worked. Now, why is this important? Because the developments that happened during this time began to do something with religion. Religion at that time, and again, sociologists, you can read about this, religion at that time was the mainstay, was the main understanding of how we were to live and how we were to act and how we were to interact with one another and how we were to relate with one another, how we ordered our universe, how we understand how we came to be, how we understood our worldview, the big questions of why does this universe exist, etc. Religion and myth and those stories were the main fundamental ways in which we understood that. And during the axial age, during this time, during all this development, we started to realize, you know what? There are other ways that we can govern ourselves by a thing called laws. We're going to tell you this is what you should do when you make a trade. This is what you should do when you travel the seas. This is what you should do when you marry. This is what you should do when you have to discipline or when there's crime. And there's a development in the Babylonian period, in the Assyrian, and then also in the Israelite time of all of these laws. Uh, One of them is called the Code of Hammurabi. It's somewhere around the 18th century BCE, which is prior to the Axial Age, but sets the foundation for that. And what we see during this time, all of these developments, is that religion is now no longer the way in which we fundamentally operate and how we interact with one another, the, the code and the ethics. Religion is the way that we connect with the gods and we are mystically connecting with them so that crops can grow, animals can be fertile. But how we govern ourselves is now done by the dictates of the king, by law, by governance, by rule. Now, why did I go through all of that to share all of that? It is into this context It is into that world, massive development, economy, commerce, government, societal systems, even how neighborhoods organize themselves, the the idea that we're on a matrix, that there's a north and a south road by which we connect, all of that stuff is developing during this time. Into that world comes this book that we have, the book of Leviticus. And chapter 19, the chapter that we're going to talk about today, has a list of those laws that look surprisingly familiar and similar to all of those laws that developed during that time. A couple points of notice. First, you're going to notice as we go through chapter 19 that it looks a little bit like the Ten Commandments. And again, that makes sense because the listing that is there is a list of laws, very similar to the Ten Commandments. And it has that idea of covenant and relationship for those of you who've been with us through the Exodus story. However, there's a distinct 
difference as we go through chapter 19 that I'd like to point out for you that I think is extremely relevant for us and what the Levitical law and why this particular passage, why this particular text is distinct. In chapter 19, we have a list of laws, a list of ethics, a list of rules, but for the first time, it appears that the ritualistic part of our natures the religious part of who we are, the spiritual part of who we are, the idea that I need the self-help book, that I want to become a better person, that I want to connect with God, that I want to have a better devotional life. For the first time, all of those ritualistic things that we do is now equally connected with the ethics and the behaviors that we live in our laws. Please catch this. Leviticus is this huge text that gives us ritual, that gives us ceremony, that gives us sacrifice, all of those things that we've talked about all the way up until this point. And now it's going to give us law, ethic, rules, regulations. And the reason why it's there is because for the first time, the thing that Leviticus is sharing with us is that how we behave ethically in this world is hand-in-hand connected with how we operate spiritually and devotionally in our private lives. Which is what makes my experience in that Christian bookstore somewhat of a disconnect for me. Because so much of the material that we consume, so much of the material that we are promulgating is about our personal, interior, devotional life. And the question that we have to ask is, does the biblical narrative, do our ancestors who wrote these texts down want spirituality, religion, ritual, all that to simply be interior? And I'm going to propose to you, this is my proposed thesis to us, the answer is absolutely not. Your connection with God your prayer life, your spirituality, your understanding of the supernatural, all of those things that are deeply important to your faith journey here in Leviticus 19 is going to thrust you out into the open and say, does it make a difference in the world that you live, in the ethics that you have, in how you treat your neighbor, in how you treat the poor? That's the question that this passage is going to ask. And if, for some reason, you can't get on board with that, then there may be something wrong with how you are sacrificing your devotion, your spiritual and spirituality, and your interior life. That's my thesis. Ritual, ethic, the sacred, and justice now go hand in hand. And they must go hand in hand to fully express what these biblical authors, what God is trying to do in this world. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in verse 3, and we're just going to go through one by one. And what I'd like for you to do is just pause for a moment on each one. It's a fairly lengthy list. And ask yourself the question, is this something that is just merely a devotional piece? Or is this something that is an out expression of and connected to my personal spiritual devotion? And where are those connections there? Verse 3, honor, fear, revere your father and mother. Verse 3, keep my Sabbaths. Rest, take a day off. 
recognize that you are not the creator, that you need to be recreated. Verse 4, turn away from idols. Things that you think you own, but that actually own you. Verse 5, when you sacrifice a peace offering, do so in a way that is acceptable. How many of you have participated in some sort of reconciliation? Somebody said sorry, but you know, they were just going through the motions. They were just saying sorry because it was the proper thing to do. But they didn't actually want to make a peace offering. They were just doing it because, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. And here, this injunction is to say, when you do this, make sure that it is done in a way that is acceptable, where you can actually make peace. When you reap the harvest from your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, verse 9. Why? Because there are poor people in your midst, and you should leave that for them so that they have sustenance, so that they can come to your field and get food. Verse 10, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. So, even though I'm supposed to be picking grain and rice and wheat, and I'm going to take that and I'm going to sacrifice that to the Lord, that's going to be my spiritual offering, I'm also supposed to make sure that I don't go over it so that there's food left over for people who are in need. Don't steal. I'm not quite sure how much explanation is needed. Verse 11, don't lie or deal falsely with one another. And in the age that we are living in today, I'm sure that this could be extremely applicable. And you can say how much you want to say that you are a deep person of faith. Does it manifest itself in these ethics? Don't swear falsely by my name that you may profane the name of your God. Should we be careful how we speak, how we call upon God's name? Don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. In other words, make sure you pay on time. Now, now think about this for a second. I mean, just over these. This was written to a group of people, again, where massive commerce, massive development is happening. And you can tell already by some of these injunctions, by some of these commandments, that what was happening to these people as all this development and wealth and commerce were happening, oh, I can take advantage of this system. I don't have to worry about all these people. I don't have to worry about the poor. I don't have to pay on time. Why? Because all of this development and all of this civilization that's growing and exploding is causing me to be prosperous. And you start to forget and lose. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Oh, I mean, think about our legal system today. Think about the stories that you hear of the massive injustices that exist even in our legal system. Is this not still applicable today? Do not go around spreading slander among your people in person or online. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. All you have to do is search Darwin Awards and you'll come up with plenty of images there. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. By the way, this word rebuke, um, 
some commentators suggest rebuke is really not the right word. It's really reason with, argue with, come to terms with your neighbor so that you will not share in their guilt. And then this beautiful central passage, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We're going to get to that in a second. Don't make two different kinds of animals. Don't plant your fields with two different kinds of seeds. Don't, water, don't wear clothing of two different kinds of materials. And then this passage again, it's in Leviticus, I, and we always hesitate. If a man sleeps with a woman who is a bondservant, and then it goes through all sorts of stuff that I will say for later. Verse 23. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard, uh, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. I have no idea what that means. Moving on. Verse 26. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. I think we talked a little bit about this in a previous passage. Again, uh, thinking about the ethics for how we treat our animals, how we treat our food. Do not practice divination or seek omens. And it's really amazing to me how many of these still exist today. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard, which is, again, to show a little bit of your distinctness. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. This is the famous passage that people like to tattoo onto their arms, uh, tattoo onto their bodies. Um, the background to this is that, again, some of the religious practices practice self-flagellation. Uh, in fact, if you did some searches, you can find video of people still doing this today, where caught up in the religious frenzy or because of the re- religious ritual and the tradition, you hit yourself, you cut yourself until you bleed, and it's a pretty gruesome sight. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute, or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. This in and of itself could, we could flesh out lots of potential applications, asking the question of what are we actually doing to our children. Do not turn to seek mediums or seek out spiritists. This is the oracle at Delphi, one of the famous oracles where people would go and seek out divination. Again, something that still happens today. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. So next time any of you old people walk in, we will all stand in honor and respect you. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, and here's where our refugee crisis and the work that we've been doing is so applicable. Do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Um, I am the Lord your God. Applicable? Still today? Yeah. Let's consider deeply how we treat the foreigner, how we treat those people. Why? Because that's who we are. And then one of my favorite Um, Norman Rockwell paintings, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Now, there's your laws. Do these things. Each and every one of you, I would encourage you, go back through Leviticus 19. Circle one or two of those that you say, you know what, this is something I should probably pay attention to. This is probably something that I haven't been doing. You know, I haven't been standing every time my mom walks through the the room. I should probably start doing that right now. Um, Consider deeply. 
the development of the religion of ancient Israel equated the ritual, the sacrifices, with these kinds of ethics, how you behaved in the world, how you treated your neighbor, how you treated the foreigner. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that Judaism fundamentally is a religion of love. Love God, love your neighbor, and love the stranger. This sets the foundation for how we are to behave. And this ritual and this ethic were hand in hand in this time. But slowly over time, the ritual, the sacrifice, became more important than the ethic by which that ritual was supposed to be expressed. You see this all throughout the development of the religion. By the way, you see that in the development of our religion. How you are to live, how you are to behave, how you are to act, and how you are to live amongst one another slowly becomes marginalized at the prioritization of the ritual of how you go to church, how you read your Bible, how you pray, how you're devoted, how you make sure you take care of all the doctrines, etc. So we are familiar with this practice, and this happened then and it happens now. And the prophets, later on that we will get to, rise up and say, you all have missed it. Sure, you've got the ritual down, you've got the sacrifices down, you're going through the motions and you've got this down, but you've completely missed the marriage of the two, ritual and ethic. If you know some of Israel's history, they get taken over by some of these other massive civilizations that come in, Babylon and Assyria, then Greece and Rome. They just take them out. And these later prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, that we're going to get to later on, rise up and say, the reason why this happened, the reason why you have been vomited from the land, the reason why you've been exiled, the reason why you've been kicked out, you've missed it. You've done the ritual, but you haven't done the ethic. So the psalmist writes, the sacrifices of God, the ritual piece, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is what God has been looking for. Hosea writes, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And acknowledgement, knowledge, knowing God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6.8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. This is what this entire project has been about this entire time. And then this beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 5. But the Lord Almighty, God himself, will be exalted by his justice. And the holy God will be proven holy by his righteous acts. Do you hear it? The holiness of God is connected to the justice of God. And the prophets are declaring, this is what this law, this testimony, this teaching has been about the entire time. The marriage of the two, ritual, sacred, and ethics, justice, behavior. And I would suggest to you, for those of you who are familiar with Leviticus 19.18, this is the number two commandment of Jesus. I find it no accident that the number two commandment of Jesus is found right in the middle of the Levitical laws that have to do with ethics, how we treat each other socially, how we treat each other communally. In other words, justice equals holiness. So I'm going to ask you a question. This is, I'll end with this. This compels us today to consider deeply the reason and purpose of our, of our faith. What really is the end result, the end goal of our worship? We sing songs, we have devotional times, we have beliefs, 
We try to be holy people. And my question for you as a result of Leviticus 19 is this. To what end? To what end? To what goal? To what kind of people are we going to become? And if it simply ends up in making us feel good, turning inside again towards being the kind of people that make us feel good about ourselves through our rituals, then I would, I would beg the question, have we too lost the ethic that was supposed to be deeply tied to the ritual? Two authors that I would commend to you for your consideration for how this works out. The first, one of my favorite books um, that I've read in a long time by Rich Stearns, The Whole in Our Gospel. The idea behind The Whole in Our Gospel is quite simple. It's basically the belief that being a Christian or follower of Jesus Christ requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. If your personal faith in Christ has no positive outward expression, then your faith and mine has a hole in it. Ritual, personal piety, devotion, and justice, ethic together. Uh, Jim Wallace wrote a book many, many years ago called God's Politics, um, and he's famous for this statement, faith is personal, but it's never private. And in his book, God's Politics, in the very beginning, he writes this. The book will explore how people concerned about social change and hungry for spiritual values can actually combine these two quests. The two go together. Too often, politics and spirituality have been separated, polarized, and even put into com competition with one another. We have been buffeted by private spiritualities that have co no connection to public life and a secular politics showing disdain for religion or even spiritual concerns. That leaves spirituality without social consequences and a politics with no soul. And political discourse that is disconnected from moral values quickly degenerates. We will ask how we might change our public life with the values that many of us hold most dear. This book is about how to connect a genuinely prophetic spirituality to the urgent need for social justice. This is the connection the world is waiting for. Cornell West sums it up in this phrase, justice is what love looks like in public. Jesus sums it up by saying, if you have a gift, leave it at the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And Paul sums it up by saying, be living sacrifices, alive and work out. And later on in this chapter, in Romans chapter 12, he talks about loving of your neighbor, right from Leviticus. So, my friends, in the midst of us trying and attempting to be holy people in accordance with Leviticus, I would ask for us to consider holiness in this definition is not just about being different and distinct, pious, devoted, it's also about being just. It's what the ancient people called righteous. This is about charity, public good, societal justice. Holiness is about understanding that civilization works best when love and justice are at the center of everyday life. In other words, Leviticus which is all about holiness and sacrifice and ritual and what kind of animals you have to bring in order to draw near to God, has this chapter 19 in it that's also about justice, how we act, 
how we behave, how we treat our neighbor, how we treat the stranger. And those two, in Leviticus, are married together as one. So let us be those people. Let's sing great songs. Let's have great devotional times. Let's buy phenomenal books that make us more devoted. And let us ensure that the expression of that devotion makes a difference with the stranger and our neighbor and how we do commerce and how we behave with one another and how we raise our children and how we treat our relationships and our friendships and how we do politics and how we do societal change together. Justice equals holiness. Okay, Lord, thank you for Leviticus. Thank you for giving us an insight and a window into this ancient world where massive developments by our ancestors have set the foundation for how we are to live and how we are to develop the very best kind of life, society, and civilization. And God, we confess to you that for some of us personally, as well as in our community, we've lost it. We have prioritized the ritual, personal devotion, and piety, and we have forsaken. We have forsaken those really critical things like justice and mercy and compassion and loving our neighbor. So help us, God, figure out and work towards marrying these two once again. And may we be the kind of people that embrace both and live it out into this world that so desperately needs this kind of life. And I pray in your name. Amen.